All right, folks, I think we're ready to get started. Uh, thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, I think most of you probably already know about our, our topic, so I'll let our speaker speak to it more, since that's what we're paying him here to do. Uh, yeah, she, uh, but our speaker is, is Dave Hall, who's, uh, we've been best friends for 25 years. Long time. Yeah. Too long for Dave, is what he's saying. <laughs> um, but he is the newly installed pastor at Filbert Presbyterian Church over in Filbert, South Carolina, outside York. And so uh, we are glad to have him. So I'll leave it to you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you all for, for coming. Uh, glad to be with you uh, for these next few days. Let me open our time with, with prayer. Lord, we thank you that you rule and reign over all your creatures and all their actions. We thank you that you are glorious and majestic. And we praise you and we ask that you would add your blessing to what we do uh, over these next few evenings, that you would help us to think about the mission that you have entrusted to the church and the implications of that mission for the rising generations, as well as the challenges that are uh, accompanying all of that. We thank you that you are at work in your church. We pray you would help us to be faithful to the gospel and to the calling that you have placed upon our lives. Thank you for your church here at Bethel. We pray that you would bless them as they seek to carry out uh, the great commission in this uh, field of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well welcome. Uh, let me introduce my topic by giving uh, just a brief kind of scenario that I think may be familiar or may resonate with you some. I want you to think for a second about uh, a young man. He, he is growing up in the church. His parents are both actively involved in the church. And so from a young age, he's He's used to coming on Sunday mornings, sitting in the pew, uh, engaging in worship, going to the uh, Sunday school classes appropriate for his age. When he gets to be old enough, he joins the youth group and is an active member in the youth group, goes on, on every, every youth trip that's available in the fall, fall retreats. Uh, not at Bon Clarkin because I'm in the PCA, so they go to Ridge Haven, our, our uh, lesser version of Bon Clarkin. And uh, goes to the summer youth conferences, so inundated with biblical teaching, parents who love the Lord, living that faith out uh, in their home, graduates high school and uh, goes, goes to college and, let's see, about, mm, graduates maybe 2011, so 11 plus 4, about 15 years go by and uh, all of a sudden he decides, he meets a girl and he decides he wants to get married. And so he calls up his former youth pastor and he says, Dave, I've met a girl. Uh, like we're, we're engaged. We want to get married. Will you perform uh, the ceremony? And so I've got some questions. I've got questions. Well, where have you been going to church? Well, you know, I hadn't really been anywhere since, uh, since graduated high school. You know, went to college. It was hard to kind of get connected. Um, okay, well, you know, that's, that's all right. We can, we can find you a, a church. That's, that's a good thing to do. Um, tell me, you know, where, where are y'all living? Oh, we're living together. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, some of the things that we might ask of you before, you before you get married. And you can imagine what those types of things are. As a pastor, if I'm going to be marrying this couple, I want to know, I want to I help them get started on the right foot. We'll just put it that way. How many of you can uh, picture a scenario like that? Maybe somebody you know, maybe somebody in your family, or, or whatever the case may be. Actively involved in school, uh, during high school, and then after high school, disconnected from the church, 
And then when they want to get married, there's kind of a desire to reconnect with the church, but there's, there's some challenges that come along with that. Anybody, raise your hand if any of that sounds at all familiar. Yeah. It ought to sound very familiar because it's probably one of the most common trends that we see uh, among the younger generation growing up in, in the church, evangelical Bible-believing churches, churches like yours, uh, churches like mine. If the statistics are right, and every, every book that you read has a different set of statistics, so you can kind of do with that what you want, uh, but on average, the statistics say that roughly uh, on any given Sunday, only about 14% of 18 to 39-year-olds are attending church. Okay, so think about that age range. Okay, that's a formative time of life. And in the United States, only 14% of folks in that age range are at all connected to the local church. Um, America, like every other kind of civilized, modernized nation, uh, is becoming increasingly secularized so that uh, at least recent studies have said that the most um, popular or the kind of number one choice on surveys where people have an opportunity to say what their religious affiliation is, the, the one choice that is beginning to equal and then surpass Protestant Christians is the choice, no affiliation. They're called the nuns. Maybe you've heard of uh, this in the news, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. We're not having an influx of nuns in that sense. Um, I'd be surprised if that were the case. But there's this rise of this kind of demographic group, mostly in that age range of 18 to 29 or 18 to 39 years old, where when they take general surveys and they're asked what their religious affiliation is, they'll say none, you know, no preference. Um, backtrack maybe 60 years ago, so 1960s. What do you think was the, the number one choice of religious affiliation, say, in the 1960s? If you had to take a guess. Protestant. Um, for most of American history, Protestant Christianity has been the, the dominant cultural influence, certainly the dominant church influence. And, and so you could kind of expect that most people had some, some flavor of Christian influence in, in their lives. We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. My only point in introducing that now is to say we're living in a culture where the more and more the dominant identification of religious affiliation among this age group is none. No religious affiliation. Other surveys, other statistics say that on average about two-thirds of young adults raised in the church, okay, so two-thirds of, of your young people raised in the church will disconnect after high school. Of those two-thirds, only about one-third will come back, usually connected to getting married and, and having children. Any of you know, uh, can any of you think of people in that category where they disconnected from the church for a little while, but then they came back. They got married, started having children. A lot of times that kind of generates this desire. Maybe if they were raised, in, if they're raised in the church, they want to raise their children that way. And so they, they decide, well, we need to re-engage. And that's a common thing too. About one third of those who leave uh, re-engage with the church, begin to kind of renew faith commitments, if you will, after that uh, hiatus from the church, around, usually around the time they start a family. Think about this as well, another kind of just uh, token to throw out there. 
In most churches, uh, this is probably true for y'all, I know this is true for us, we have a lot of resources, both people and budget resources, time certainly, devoted to children and youth. Right? Is that an important thing for the church to be focused on? Yes, everybody do this. Yes, absolutely. That's a wonderfully important thing. We've got obligations uh, in that regard. But there seems to be this kind of donut hole. Anybody, anybody here know what the donut hole is? You know, if, uh, is this Medicare? Uh, I don't know what the, the medications one is. It D or something? I don't know. There's a donut hole, right, in Medicare where Medicare will pay for a certain amount uh, of your medications and then you, once you reach that amount, you hit the donut hole and you, you are obligated to pay more for your medications and then when you get out of the donut hole, you're in the catastrophic category and they'll pay quite a lot more. I want you to think about ministry to young adults after high school in the church can often be a donut hole. You know, we're, we're investing all kinds of time and people and money uh, through childhood, through the youth group age, and then all of a sudden they hit 18 and it's like, phew, we, dis- we disconnect. You know, we stop engaging uh, in that time period. And there's, there's reasons why we often do that. And yet, uh, when we go to the Bible, I'm at the start here, we go to the Bible... Um, let me just read a couple passages to kind of remind us of what Jesus has entrusted us to do. And, and as we do this, uh, my, my goal tonight is to kind of introduce the problem, what's often called the dropout problem, this, this two-thirds dropping out after high school and maybe only one-third coming back, uh, this, this dropout problem. I want to introduce the problem, talk about some of the factors that are contributing to it. Why is this happening as far as we can tell, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to say, but there's lots of reasons. And, and then start to think about what the church can do uh, in response to the problem. And we won't solve all those things tonight or by Wednesday, but we'll at least maybe throw some things out there, things to think about as the church. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples before he ascended up into heaven, and he gave them this mission. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. The church has been given a clear mission, a great commission, to make disciples. Uh, of, of all nations, that's kind of the focus of this Great Commission. But within that context of the Great Commission going out to all nations, making disciples, uh, the church as the covenant community of God's people is also called to carry out that Great Commission with regard to the next generation. So Psalm uh, 78, for example, for he established a testimony in Jacob, another name for Israel, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come, even the children yet to be born, this is multi-generations later, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." Within the broader context of the Great Commission, make disciples, there is this covenant commitment within the church 
to make sure we're carrying that out to the next generation. And, and my burden that I want to kind of help bring you along with, and maybe you probably already have it, is to think about that mission with regard to uh, the rising generation of young adults, some of, you, some of whom are here, which is wonderful. That's great. Um, but we need to be thinking about the challenges that young adults face and how we can, as the church, reach them for Jesus and help them to serve as members of the local church. We often think that the youth group years, those teenage years, are the most formative years of life. And certainly they are formative. But I would argue that for the adult life, uh, those, these years of 18 to 29, 18 to 39, uh, it sometimes gets longer uh, than just to 29 years old. These are the most formative and shaping years for adults. You get married during that time, you maybe pick your career, settle into some long-term trajectory, you establish the patterns and habits of life that will shape you and define you for the rest of your adult life, very likely. Um, and yet we often, the church often kind of lets that, that age group kind of fall into the donut hole. And, and, um, and we, need to do, we need to work harder and do better with regard to that. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the factors relating to the dropout problem. Any questions, though, before we move on to what's next? Any objections? Okay, all right, very good. Uh, Let's talk about some of the factors contributing to the dropout problem. Uh, James said I was going to have a whiteboard, and then um, then he took the whiteboard away from me. So I've brought brought some laser pointers I'm just going to draw in the air. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, let's talk about some of the factors relating to the dropout problem. I've listed four there, um, and so we're going to kind of walk through these, and I'm going to try to illustrate along the way. If you have questions or anything like that, let me know. Yes, do you, in the back. Oh, I totally didn't do that, thank you. Uh, I have an outline that would be helpful for you to have. Okay, get some help, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I put those up there for you, James. Thought you knew that. Sorry, thank you. While that's being passed out, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm the senior pastor of Philbrook Presbyterian Church in York. I've been there for uh, 22 years in some way, shape, or form. And um, we have my wife and I have three young children: an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 14-year-old girl, boy, girl. Our oldest just graduated high school and is going to uh, Winthrop University in the fall, which is just close to us, as you, as you probably know. Now, do you anticipate they will be active in the church? Do I anticipate if they will be active in the church? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I think they will. Time will tell. It certainly raises the personal burden of these issues. What you're, what you're receiving is both an outline for tonight as well as an article from World Magazine that I'll reference later as an illustration. I won't read through the article tonight, but just kind of give it to you for future reference. 
I'm fairly certain that uh, my making copies of that article from the magazine falls within fair use, but if you have any objections to that, you can subscribe to World Magazine. It's well worth the money. Okay, anybody still needing an outline or the article? Right here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry I forgot about that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the post-Christian culture. This is not a new idea. Francis Schaeffer in the 1960s and 70s was talking about the post-Christian culture of America. He, of course, had spent quite a bit of time in Europe um, during those years, and so he understood kind of the trajectory that the United States was headed on. Uh, we're a little bit behind some of the secularization in Europe, but we're quickly catching up. So when I talk about post-Christian culture, um, what that's just another way of saying that the culture in America is becoming increasingly secularized, uh, meaning that any, any notion or any acceptance of the idea of God or of a transcendent God who is above you, who has some sort of authority over you with regard to morality or identity, uh, that all of that is getting pushed to the margins. And you can probably see these types of things playing out in, in the larger society and some of the debates and things that are going on in our own culture. For example, if any of you follow some of the Supreme Court rulings, obviously the, the Roe v. Wade one was a, a significant one, but there was another ruling recently about a football coach being able to pray after the game, whether that was... Um, kind of an encroachment on or, or if that was forcing the school to make some sort of religious statement or if he was able to do that as an individual expression of his own personal religious commitment. Um, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't have anything to say about the legal uh, intricacies of all of that. But just to point out the fact that that is, that is an issue in our society. Can a coach on his own go and pray and do it in public is that, is that legitimate? Is that allowed? And, and some of that is a reflection of the fact that our, our society as a whole wants to kind of push religious commitment, talk about God, talk about a transcendent being who's over us in authority, to push that to the margins of any kind of public discourse. Okay? Uh, and, and you almost can't, in many places, you can't begin to talk about God in those ways without being perhaps ridiculed. Um, one of the ways this, this affects the, the church and the witness of the church is through this idea of what's often called the squishy center. Okay, the squishy center. And what do I mean by that? This is a phrase that a guy named James White uses, and, and when he talks about the squishy center, he's talking about kind of nominal Christianity. Okay, so what, what, the, what does the average Joe on the street uh, my apologies if any of you are named Joe. Uh, but what does the average Joe on the street believe about God, believe about morality? And so James White, in one of his books, uh, talks about kind of a scale of one to ten. Okay? One being um, hardline atheist. Okay? And a ten being a, a committed, born-again Christian. 
Okay, and he uh, James White argues that somewhere maybe in the 1960s or so, uh, you know, within the 20th century, kind of middle of the century, that that the average American was maybe an eight. Okay, so maybe not your committed Christian, but influenced by a Christian worldview, maybe went to church, maybe kind of Christmas and Easter, but had respect for the Bible. Uh, maybe even believed that the Bible had some sort of authority for his life, but he was an eight on that scale. And so if you're going to evangelize a person who's an eight, um, in, humanly speaking, of course, God, God changes people, God saves people, but humanly speaking, a lot of the work was already done. This was a person who shared many assumptions with biblical faith, even if he was not himself a committed Christian. And so very often what was needed to evangelize somebody who was an eight on this scale, and they were the, the squishy center, uh, they could go either way, but kind of were dominated by the culture, by whatever the dominant view of the culture was. If you were going to evangelize someone who was an eight, maybe all you needed to do was invite them to church. And, and there wouldn't be a whole lot of cultural barriers to that. They'd be open to coming to church if they weren't already going. Or maybe there'd be an evangelistic rally in your neighborhood and you could invite them to that and you'd have somebody speak and they'd present the gospel and call people to come down to, to commit themselves to Jesus. And, and this guy who was an eight already shared a whole lot of the basic assumptions of Christianity, even if he wasn't a Christian. Okay? He's a nominal Christian this is the squishy center of American culture uh, back in the 1960s or 50s. He could go either way, but was largely influenced by Christianity as the dominant influence in America. Today, the average Joe on the street, the, the squishy center of American culture, is no longer an eight, but, but some would say is more like a three. Okay? They don't share assumptions about the authority of God with regard to morality or identity or purpose. Um, there, there's, there's not as many shared cultural assumptions between the number 10 Christians and the rest of the society. We're living in a post-Christian culture where you can't assume that everybody is still kind of influenced by Christianity as a dominant cultural influence. One of the ways this gets um, is, is, is seen most often is through this idea of what's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And what do I mean by expressive individualism? Have any of you read or seen a book by Carl Truman uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Anybody familiar with this? James? Okay. Uh, you familiar with it? <laughs> Tell me your name, sorry. Adrian, all right, Adrian and James, y'all can go talk to Adrian and James about Carl Truman's book. Um, in this book, Carl Truman kind of traces the, the development of this idea through um, you know, kind of philosophical works. But the basic idea is that uh, in, in expressive individualism, there's no authority outside of myself. There's no authority above me. Uh, I am my own authority when it comes to what is right, what is true. And most of it is determined by feeling, okay? And so in this book, Carl Truman asked the question, what had to, what had to happen? What, what things had to have happened in order for somebody to say something like, I am a, a woman trapped in a man's body, and for everybody to nod their head as though that makes perfect sense? 
He said, you know, 60 years ago, if somebody would have said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, uh, people would have said, there's something wrong with you. You need to go, you know, find some help. And I know these are kind of sensitive things, and I'm not trying to make, make light of this. But in, in his book, Truman argues that part of what's happened is the standard of, of truth has largely changed from something outside of me to which I conform. Now the standard is something inside of me to which everybody else needs to conform. Okay? And so as you, as you look around at many of the issues going on in the world with regard to um, sexual identity, uh, sexual orientation, and gender identity, this is a lot of what's behind uh, that, that movement is that my identity is determined not by biological reality, but by what I feel on the inside. Okay? This is expressive individualism. And the role of the society now is not to provide a standard to which I am to conform, but rather the role of society now is to conform to my internal desires. There must be affirmation. There must be conformity to what I think and to what I believe, which is a, a real reversal of most of history. Most of history, uh, you grew up as an individual. You were a member of a community, right? Right? Your family, maybe if you grew up uh, in a place where lots of your family lived, you had extended family as part of your community. The church was part of your community. Whatever it was, you grew up as an individual within a community. And there were certain standards that that community set. And most individuals in that community conformed to those standards. And, and if they didn't, there were consequences and, and they, they felt the weight of that. And yet now things are reversed so that there is... Uh, the, the individual is now sovereign with regard to his identity, with regard to his morality. We're no longer governed by external authority outside and above me, but rather governed by internal authority defined by me. Okay, so expressive individualism. Which means that if you start to talk about sin, if you start to talk about the need for repentance, uh, the need for regeneration and the new birth, to, to become something different, to, to be conformed to the image of Christ or to conform to God's law, however you want to put it, we're living now in a society that when you say those things, typical traditional Christian message, uh, it's, it's kind of in one ear and out the other. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the way people think about themselves. So we're living in a post-Christian culture. Uh, the average Joe is no longer an eight on the scale. He's a three. And we're all living in the sea of expressive individualism. Any questions about post-Christian culture? Yeah, I have a question. Okay. So Where where does the post-Christian culture and expressive individualism come from? That's a big question. You can read Carl Truman's book. He says, in a nutshell, um, uh, Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, uh, all of these kind of major thinkers who kind of revolutionize the way we think about identity, the way we think about sexuality, the way we think about morality uh, and meaning in life, that these thinkers 
kind of you know started out as elites. You know, they didn't trickle down until much later because these are guys back in the 1700s. Uh, many of them, not all of them, obviously Freud's later, uh, but. He, he argues that a lot of it comes from the Enlightenment, basically, from the 1700s, kind of now coming to fruition in the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And, and now we're kind of reaping the fruit of some of that, where the sexual revolution has blossomed into um, the whole discussion about uh, gender identity that we're, we're all embroiled in now. So I'm hoping that during your talk you will bring this up, how do you deal with a transgender yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna deal with that. <laughs> that is a hard question, though. But I will try to have some resources to point on, on ways to help help us uh, interact with and 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 love people dealing with transgender identity type situations. It's, it's more and more common, and it's something Christians need to be prepared for. Uh, how to how to bear witness to the love of Christ in those situations? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a good question. It's a, a lot of a lot of pendulum swings certainly going on. Well, that's the that's the post-Christian culture, um, and, and I think the, the important thing for churches to think about is uh, many times churches op, churches in America, particularly if you know we're South Carolina kind of rural America, the Bible Belt. Uh, we've we've kind of lived for many many years with a cultural Christianity, and there's benefits to that. I, don't, I mean, we we shouldn't take that for granted or or think that that's not a, a healthy or a helpful thing. My point in kind of bringing this up is to say that churches can no longer function as though their neighbors share their assumptions, and and so don't be surprised when they don't. Uh, but, but think creatively about ways to bear witness to the gospel in a culture that is not sympathetic to the gospel. All right? Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of the point. We, we can often become very complacent and think, well, everybody kind of thinks the way I do. And if they don't, there's something wrong with them. And I, you know, I don't know how to deal with that. Well, the, the church is always called to be a counterculture no matter where, where you are. And so sometimes it takes a little extra step to think about, okay, we are not in a culture that agrees with the Bible. And that's probably obvious, but, but sometimes the church lags in kind of catching up to that and thinking creatively about how we communicate the gospel to that culture uh, in, a, in a creative way that kind of connects. You don't have to change the message, obviously, but you have to think about how you communicate the unchanging message to a changing culture. Okay, post-Christian culture, let's talk about uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD. By the way, um, what time am I ending, James? Uh, 7.30-ish. Okay. All right. Well, we, we've bitten off quite a bit uh, this evening, so we'll see what we can get through on the, on the outline. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, this is, from, uh, this is a phrase coined by a guy named Christian Smith. Christian Smith is a sociologist of religion, and he led a national survey over a period of 10 to 15 years 
kind of looking at the religious views of American teenagers and then following them as they became uh, young adults, kind of asking them questions about their religious views, about their families, church life, all that kind of stuff. And he, he wrote several books out of that study. The first one was called Soul Searching, and then he wrote another book called Lost in, uh, I'm sorry, Souls in Transition. And he wrote a third one called Lost in Transition. But the, the two that are relevant for us are Soul Searching and Souls in Transition. And in his book, Soul Searching, so this was 2003-2002, Christian Smith identified or kind of put a phrase to what he found to be the common creed among American teenagers. So when he asked American teenagers their religious beliefs, he was doing a national survey, so nationally representative from all over the country, Um, he found that there were kind of common elements in what they believed about God, about morality, and so forth. And so he and the the team of researchers that he was working with put this phrase to it, moralistic therapeutic deism. And it has five basic tenets. And my my point kind of sharing this is uh, to help help us think through um, what, what most people, because what we figured out is that it's not just the religious views of teenagers, this is kind of the common creed of most people. Uh, If you ask them what their religious views are, a lot of times this is kind of how they describe their religious commitments. There's five five basic ideas to moralistic therapeutic deism. First is that there is a God who created the world. He orders it and watches over human life. Second is that this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Uh, And these are things taught in the Bible and most other world religions. So kind of golden rule type morality. The third tenet is that the main goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. This is the therapeutic part of uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. So the main goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth tenet is that God is not particularly involved in a person's life unless they need help. So God is kind of a cosmic therapist, a divine butler. I, won't, I don't have a relationship with him, but when I'm, in help, when I'm in need of help, I can talk to God and he'll help me. That's, and that's really God's role is to help me and thereby to help me feel good and uh, happy about my life. Um, related to this is that good people go to heaven when they die uh, is the, the fifth tenet. So this, this um, moralistic therapeutic deism... Uh, they argue is kind of the common creed among American youth and uh, really among American parents as well. I want you to think for just a second about how different this is from the biblical gospel. Uh, Is that the goal of the biblical gospel is the main goal of that for you to feel good about yourself and to be happy? Is there a little bit in there? Right? I mean, don't we want to be able to tell people believing in Christ will be good for you? It is. So it's, 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 it's similar to, but it's a distortion. And it's kind of a secularized distortion because the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, is he's the blind watchmaker. He winds it up and lets it go. And he's not involved unless you, you cry out to him. But you can see how this connects with this hyper-individualism. God's job, God's main job, is to make me feel good and to make me and to give me a happy life. And anything that gets in the way of that doesn't really fit. 
this is so um, kind of entrenched in American culture and then it kind of makes its way into the church that we often don't, don't realize that this is kind of the message that's often getting communicated to youth. There was a church in the uh, Durham, North Carolina area that uh, connected with Christian Smith, the, the main researcher in this program, and they said, hey, look, we are all on board with, with your research. We really see that this moralistic therapeutic deism uh, is a problem, and we want to be really intentional about teaching the Bible in a way that kind of uproots this false gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism. We want to teach these kids about the Trinitarian God, not just some generic God. We want to teach them about sin and the need for repentance and the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the goal of life to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We want to teach them biblical truths. And so this church kind of joined with this research team over the course of a year, and they were really intentional about their message, about the things they talked about with their youth and their parents. And at the end of a year, they did a survey trying to gather what the religious views were from this this group. And guess what they found out the common religious view in this church was? It was moralistic therapeutic deism. They couldn't couldn't uproot it, even though they were being intentional about the message. The, The point of all of that is to say, this is such a common creed, it often goes unnoticed. And, and yet it's incumbent upon churches to make sure that we're communicating not the kind of cultural message of uh, this distorted gospel, but communicating uh, the real gospel and the true and, and living God. But it's difficult to um, uproot. So moralistic therapeutic deism. main thing to kind of think about with that is that moralistic therapeutic deism has no view of any connection to the church, right? Uh, these five tenets... There's a God, he exists, he wants me to be happy and feel good about myself, he exists to help me when I need help, Uh, good people die when they go to heaven, and the main thing we're required to do is to be nice to each other. None of that requires you or has any connection to being connected to the body of Christ, right? It's a completely churchless view, if you, if you will. There's no view of the church involved in that and the discipleship of this. It's just you can be that, you can believe that without any connection to the local church. And so many youth may grow up thinking, this is what life is about. That there's a God who really cares about me. Uh, he may not be Father, Son, and Spirit, but he's something. And his goal for me is to be happy and to treat other people kindly, and he'll be there when I need him. They may grow up with that view and then they disconnect from the church and somebody says, hey, why don't you come back to the church? And they're like, why? Why do I need to be connected to a church? I mean, I can do all this stuff without without being connected to the body of Christ. And so you see how it kind of, it it encourages a lack of connection to the body of believers that is the local church. So moralistic therapeutic deism. Any questions about that? And then we'll, we'll try to kind of I might skip emerging adulthood here for just a second, but any questions about MTD? Okay. Uh, Let's jump down to the role of digital technology. Um, Anybody, can anybody tell me what significant event in human history happened in 2007? Okay, you're nodding your head. What's that? Facebook, okay. maybe, I'm not sure, that, I wasn't thinking about Facebook, uh, that might be right though, I'm not sure, when Facebook started, um, it's connected, it's related to that, anybody know what, 
iPhone, the iPhones, 2007. Um, before that, you had the BlackBerry, but it pales in comparison to the mighty iPhone. The iPhones first came out in 2007. There's a generation now, uh, the generation of, of my children, the, the dating of, of this generation varies depending on what you read, but my youngest child was born in 2004, and so her generation is often called Generation Z, or sometimes one author calls that generation iGen, because they've grown up in a world that has always known the iPhone, the smartphone, digital technology. Uh, now, when I was growing up, my, my dad was a big uh, Apple computer fanatic, and so we had a, um, an Apple II computer in our house. Anybody remember the Apple II? This was you know, mid-'80s? Yeah, all right. Uh, this was a big deal that we had an Apple II computer in our house. But there wasn't any Internet. You, know, you didn't have Internet on this thing. You had you know, a little literally floppy disk drive that uh, you know, controlled everything. There's, but there's been a rapid increase in digital technology and then kind of the iPhone as, if you will, the apex of that in 2007. And the role of digital technology, smartphones connected with social media, has had a massive impact on the rising generation. Uh, one that I think we have not yet really come to grips with or seen the full impact of. Let me, let me give you just a, a, a little bit of an example or just some, some of the implications of it. We live in a world where influence is disconnected from relationship. If you think about Christian discipleship for a minute, one of the most important aspects of Christian discipleship is relationship, of, of modeling faith in Jesus Christ to somebody else and helping them through personal relationship to follow Christ faithfully, living life with them, praying with them, praying for them, all the things that we promise to do in our baptismal vows. Discipleship is inherently relational and there's influence within that relationship, very often from one generation to another. We live in a world now where influence is largely disembodied largely disconnected from personal relationship. Uh, so that, as, as you know, you can, you can have a job as an influencer, right? You can be on social media and your main source of income is influencing pe- the people who follow you, with whom you have very likely no relationship, no personal relationship at all. Our next generation is growing up in a world where a lot of their influence is coming from Uh, things outside of personal relationships. Or you can think about it this way, uh, just as another angle on this. When you, when many of you were growing up and in school, uh, say you had, you know, people at school that were problems, okay? They they mistreated you, maybe they were bullying, whatever the case may be, there was drama, there's always drama at school. But when you came home, what could you do? You could disconnect from the drama. You didn't have to bring it home with you. You come home, uh, you go to your room, you can put on your record, whatever you did. Uh, you could disconnect. You didn't bring it home with you. But our young people, they can't escape it. They, they have it in their pockets. And, and it's constant. It's unending. Or just another, another quick angle. When I was growing up, my, my parents exercised influence and authority over the things that I watched, the things that I listened to, and the things that I read. Now, I got away with a lot, but they tried, right? 
and, and my friends. They had influence over my fr- who my friends were. They, they had some measure of control over the things that were influencing my life. And obviously, they were influencing me. How many, how many parents, as soon as their child is able to, giving them one of these guys or, or a tablet or whatever the case may be? Now, you've got to make choices as a parent. So I'm, not, I'm not bringing the hammer down on you. But I am urging you strongly, if that's your situation, to strongly consider the impact of digital technology, social media on the rising generation. The article that you've got from World Magazine is called A Web of Deception, The Fake Reality and Peer Contagion of the Internet Are Leading Many Teen Girls into Transgenderism. Just read this. The gist of it is to say that... um, that it, t- it follows the story of one girl in particular who is representative of, of many other stories and how her kind of journey into transgenderism, moving from a, a female to a male in her situation, was largely, if not wholly, driven by the influence she was receiving through social media. Think, just think about the weight of that for a minute. Of, of something that significant in a person's life being driven by the influence of others with whom they have no personal relationship. Okay, so I just throw that out there as a significant factor happening in the world and one uh, that the church needs to be aware of and thoughtful about. Uh, so influence of digital technology, influence without relationships, um, so that's I'll, there's a lot more you could say about that. You could do a whole you could do a whole thing on that. There's there's plenty to be said, um, but I'll just put that out there for your for your thought. Okay, that's enough doom and gloom. Let's talk about what's good. <laughs> Let's talk about what's helpful. Uh, what are the things that are going on for the ones who stay? Okay, if two thirds in uh, in general are leaving the church after high school. And, and these are some of the factors that are contributing to that. What about the ones who stay? Now, let's not forget, let's not forget uh, those. And what, what are the factors that often contribute to that retention, if you will? Uh, I'll tell you just two things in brief, and then I'll, I'll pause for any, any questions. Um, if I could say just two things that are most important about um, what makes the most impact on those youth who stay uh, connected to the local church or continue to have a commitment to Jesus after high school is this, parents and other adults. Now, none of you should be surprised by that. That's, that's not anything mind-blowing, but I think sometimes we forget the incredible impact and influence that parents have. Um, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I've got an 18-year-old daughter in the house She's getting ready to go to college, and so we're, kind of, we're going to be entering that renegotiating stage of life. She's not fully adult uh, yet, but she's not a little kid anymore. And, she, and so she's got some more freedom, some more responsibility, but she's not kind of fully out on uh, her own. And it's tempting, many parents are tempted in this way to say, you know what, they're 18, they've got to make all their decisions for themselves, we've been making decisions for them their whole life, it's up to you, I'm hands off. Kind of uh, laissez-faire parenting after they turn 18. You know, whatever they want to do, that's up to them. Or many parents, maybe some of you can resonate with this, many parents go through those teenage years 
and there's struggle, right? There's conflict. There is, uh, there's hostility in those years. They're really, really hard. And sometimes you may just feel like, ah, this is too much. Forget it. They're not listening to me anyway. I'm just going to, I'm not going to try to influence them anymore. And then they get to be young adults and that, that same attitude kind of continues. And, and I, I just want to encourage you, if you, whatever situation you're in, that the influence of parents is still the number one reason why young adults who have grown up in the church and continue to have a relationship with Jesus and his church, uh, the number one reason for that is the influence of their parents. Aside from the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit using parents. This should not surprise us because this is exactly what the Bible teaches us about the importance of covenantal discipleship, raising the next generation to know and to love the Lord. So my encouragement is don't give up. Don't don't, uh, diminish the influence of, of parents on children and the influence of other adults. Most of our society right now is built to segment the generations from one another. So that many young people grow up without any meaningful relationships to adults outside of their family. And and that's a loss. uh, Because we're meant, particularly as the church, we're meant to be an intergenerational community. One generation teaching the other. You can think about Paul's instructions in the pastoral epistles. You know, older women teach younger women. Older men teach younger men. There's all these intergenerational relationships. And yet we're living in a society where all of that is segmented. Where, where young people have very little contact with older people outside of their families. And even like the one kind of um, intergenerational contact that the children might have during each day, a family meal, a lot of it is now occupied with this. And you're sitting around the table completely alone with five other people. And so that intergenerational cont- contact is being threatened more and more, and, and we're losing... Um, we lose something with that. It, it, uh, if I can kind of be extreme here, you might end up with like Lord of the Flies discipleship. You might know Lord of the Flies. You know, with this like group of young students, all the same age, get stuck on an island, and it's like tyranny. I mean, it's terrible. That's what happens when you have when you isolate one generation without any others. It's bad. It's like giving the junior high kids the authority to make all the rules on the junior high retreat. It's not going to go well. Uh, you can't trust them with that kind of authority because then they become tyrants. There's a great benefit in intergenerational relationships. And, and even like, you know, just studies looking at religious um, you know, patterns and so forth, not even by Christians necessarily, but people who study these things, they all say the same thing. Parents matter, other adults matter. And, and the church may be one of the few remaining places where it's normal for young people to have interactions, healthy, you know, healthy, safe interactions with members of older generations and to be able to benefit from that. Uh, and so God is at work in the church in a wonderful way through those intergenerational discipleship opportunities. Okay, so those who stay connected to the church, parents matter most, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, uh, in the days ahead of you know, what that means and also other uh, adults in relationship with younger younger people. Okay, I'll stop there and see if y'all have any questions as we as we close. One more time, what was the title of the Truman book? Uh, Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph 
of the modern self. I think that's right. Yeah, um, emerging adulthood, or is sometimes called extended adolescence. Um, the the idea is that uh, young people are taking longer to kind of reach the traditional milestones of adulthood. So think, you know, um, marriage, children, settling into a job, uh, financial independence. If, you th- if I think about my parents' generation, my dad was born in 1946, so right at the beginning of the baby boomer generation. Um, you know, he went to college. It was, it was kind of a, a straight line into adulthood, right? You go to high school. He went to the Citadel in 1964, graduated in 1968, had a job his entire life until he retired, got married right after college. You know, that was that's kind of traditional, very quick road, very quick straight road into adulthood. The road into adulthood now for many is not quick and it's not straight. Lots of curves. Think about the game of life. One writer uses this as an illustration. The old version of the game of life was very kind of traditional categories. It was clear, right? There were kind of social expectations that were clear. You go to school, either you leave high school and go into the workforce, or you get, a, you get more schooling, and then you end up with a job, family, and then you end up in either millionaire acres or whatever the other retirement place was in the game of life. The modern game of life is like a circuitous route, and there's no clear expectations. Uh, you, ne- you never know what's coming next. And it takes a lot longer to get to adulthood. Another way to think about it is the gap between your driver's license and your marriage license is getting longer. Right? And, well, for some, they're not getting their driver's license until they're 18 anyway. I have a, a, a friend whose son is 17 and he's just finally wanted to get his permit. <laughs> but, you know, he's old enough to just get his license. So that, but that gap used to be really short. If you think about driver's license at 16, maybe you're married at 22. Okay, I mean, I wasn't, I don't remember how old I was. I wasn't 22 when I got married. My oldest brother was 28 when he got married. That's more the norm. And that's, I mean, there's no right age to get married. That's not the point. The point is just there's a gap that's longer now. And the, the impact of that on those leaving the church is if, if one of the main things that brings somebody back to the church is getting married, because most, most, uh, most married people have some religious affiliation, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and so if you're less likely to be religiously affiliated if you're not married, is kind of the, the way that works. If, if marriage is kind of the milestone that brings you back to the church, and you're not getting married until you're 28, 29, maybe having children a little while after that, and you've been disconnected for then maybe 10, 11, 12 years, you might not come back. It's less likely that you'll come back. And you've been formed and shaped in almost uh, irreversible ways, humanly speaking, during that 11, 12-year time period as you kind of set your trajectory as an adult. So that's emerging adulthood. Um, that's quite an interesting kind of phenomenon. And I'm sure you can think about um, lots of examples in your own life for that. And that's not, that's not a good or bad thing. It's just, it's just kind of you know, an observation of, of trends going on. Thank you. Let me close this in prayer. Thank you for your attention. Father, we face many challenges, and yet you are sovereign, you are powerful, you are good, and your gospel is true. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to face these challenges as we think about the next generation, face them with faith and with hope, 
and the power of the gospel, the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, our great King and Savior. Help us to be faithful to Him as we also think about how to faithfully carry out your mission in the context in which we now live. Thank you for these folks here and our time together. I pray that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.